This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight, we're talking about vaccine and how Canada is protecting you from COVID-19. Some things are on the rise in addition to COVID-9 cases, like addiction and the rates of syphilis. And nurses are on the front lines of both of those wars. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Steamed assistant professor of viral pathogenesis in the Department of Medical Microbiology from the University of Manitoba, Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, PhD, joins me on the line. Good evening, Dr. Kinderchuk. Good evening, and uh, thanks for having me on as the PG portion of uh, of the show. <laughs> exactly. You didn't get a demotion, don't worry. <laughs> yes, I, I wondered if anyone ever figured that out. It's kind of the softer subjects at the beginning and the harder ones later on. <laughs> anyway, you didn't get a PhD because you weren't smart. <laughs> so, I, I'm just a simple guy. <laughs> Anyway, well, you figured out one of my tricks. I got a few tricks in the trade. Um, You know, the COVID-19 is still with us. We are kissing a uh, second wave, uh, it appears. Uh, We're also looking at the flu season as well. Uh, Lots of talk about a safe and effective vaccine for COVID-19. When can we expect that? How many candidates do we have and uh, what number are in clinical trials? Oh, man, it's, you know, it, it expands every day. And, and I got to be honest with you, I think the last time I looked, I think we were over, we're around three dozen uh, that, that are currently in uh, clinical trials. And uh-huh. that's anywhere from phase one right through to phase three. And then I think we're over 150 now that are in preclinical development. So if you were to compare this back to any time point in history, we're, we are the furthest ahead I think we've ever been. Um, you know, so it, it very much, you know, kind of heralds what... Uh, uh, you know, what we're kind of looking at is this, you know, new, you know, kind of, uh, you know, vaccine technology breakthrough. Um, but, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to fast track it. It's, you know, we're, we're all kind of keeping our fingers crossed. Exactly. It's a global pandemic and it's a global effort to the vaccine. But each country is in and of themselves, really. It's uh, each country is his own Um to each his own country is what I'm trying to say, I guess. And so what has Canada done to procure vaccines and, the, and vaccina- vaccine supplies and uh, in needles and all of the supplies that one needs um, the vehicle uh, in order to, uh, you know, provide this, distribute it, provide it to the people um, that need it uh, when and well, need it the most? Well, I think where Canada, you know, has kind of maybe gotten, you know, opened up their eyes a little bit with this pandemic is the realization that we don't really have, you know, a good va- uh, vaccine manufacturing, uh, you know, a capability or capacity um, in country. And I think, you know, we're, we're starting to see now that uh, that there's investment um, for kind of post-COVID uh, to to increase our, our capacity to do that in, in country. So we, we are actually one of the there are probably few nations that's actually very reliant on uh, on other manufacturers uh, internationally to to produce vaccines for us. Um, but where, where we sit right now is really, I think, at a, at a pretty good position. So we, you know, now have what I think, you know, five different agreements that we've had. So we have Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson and Johnson, Novavax, uh, and obviously the uh, the recent uh, uh, signing with AstraZeneca. Um, so we have basically five different vaccines that, that we have licensing agreements with um, if and when those those vaccines get approved. Um, and I think the strategy here is to, you know, kind of twofold. One is to ensure that, you know, we have 
you know, a vaccine that, uh, you know, that that will ultimately be approved. And that's because we have really five different platforms um, all look good, but the likelihood is that at least one of those will will get through and get licensed. The other side is the understanding that, um, you know, the more doses we have, uh, regardless if it's across different vaccine platforms, the better positioned we are to be able to get uh, vaccine doses out to not only our most vulnerable communities at the start, but also out to our general population uh, as we move through 2021. And, and it's going to take a bit to distribute the vaccines and uh, to ramp this up, basically to scale it. Well, and that's the thing that I always kind of caution people with. And, you know, I'm, I'm you know, a guy who, you know, teaches a lot and, and has done, you know, quite a bit of research on pox viruses and smallpox. So I, I try to take people back to that mindset of, you know, the, the global uh, eradication program and vaccination program for smallpox. This was not something that happened overnight. Um, that, that happened over a number of years. We're now in a better position. But this is not going to be something where the vaccine gets announced, gets you know approved, gets you know distributed uh, at the start of 2021, and you know by you know early spring we're all back to normal. It probably is going to take the better part of you know the bulk of 2021 to actually get the vaccine out to people, um, and, and in between that we're going to have to still be doing what we're doing with distancing and masking. So it, it's a it's going to be a long term solution, and and we need to I think appreciate. That, that we have to keep doing the things that we're doing right now um, and not lose sight of why we're doing them. And you mentioned we have uh, eight candidates uh, in late clinical testing. Um, but, but once that data, that data has to be analyzed for safety, efficacy, protective power. We need to look at how many, and ideally it would just be one injection um, versus uh, several injections over several months. It also needs a requirement, I would imagine, that it doesn't require excessively cold storage because many countries don't have that. Um, and the effectiveness rate, it uh, needs to be 70% of people at a minimum. Is that correct? Is that the yeah, requirement? So yeah, right now when we're looking at at, at that, it, it, it's still the requirement, right? And really, this is one of those time periods where we're seeing, you know, basically the the limitations of, of phase three trials, as far as obviously the breadth of data that uh, that you get from those. Obviously, the you know you're dealing with tens of thousands of uh, of people that are participating. Um, but what we're seeing is, you know, really a scale up on the ability to analyze that data in real time and see whether or not in, you know, kind of some of the preliminary data that comes in, whether or not any of those vaccines meet the uh, really the uh, efficacy rate that's needed to, to then fast track them. So, you know, we're we're looking at a bunch of different moving parts right now. To me, I think the, the, the astounding thing um, is the fact that we're looking at a, a broad number of different platforms. And for a guy like me that does a lot of work in, in uh, Central and West Africa. Um, cold chain has been an issue, but we're looking at vaccines that will actually get around that. And, and that, to me, is really important because we're not just dealing with North America. We have to deal with areas where you know the, we don't have freezers and, and fridges uh, you know, every few kilometers. So I, I think we're, we're seeing a, a quite a, a global strategy to, to meet this thing head on. So far, Canada, so good. You think we're sitting in a good position right now? I think we're in a good position. Uh, you know, right now, the, the biggest concern is is what we're seeing in, in terms of rising case counts, right? And and that's where listen, we I think we're going to be okay once once we get the vaccines out. The problem is is that in between now and that period when the vaccines start actually making it out to the public, we've got to do uh, you know our, our jurisprudence to try and, and get this thing under control. And that's at the level of individuals as well as at the level of uh, of the different provincial governments. 
um, we, we have to, you know, we have to clamp down now. We are talking with a gentleman whose research interest lies in emerging and re-emerging viruses. Fortunately, because we have this emerging virus here, COVID-19, Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, PhD, Assistant Professor of Viral Pathogenesis, Department of Medical Microbiology at the University of Manitoba, has stayed on the line for me. Thank you so much, Dr. Kinderchuk. Absolutely. Okay, so this is so important. Um, you know, and it's not, there was a time when Canada didn't exactly rise to the occasion, if we will, wasn't, you know, didn't have those licensing agreements in place, but have them now. It's But this vaccine, this cannot be rushed. And, and a lot of the public is concerned that, um, that this may not be tested on enough people. There's been some uh, thought about Russia put it, pushing a vaccine through. What are some of the steps that... Uh, that have to um, that will assure people that these vaccines are going to be safe because of course there are the anti-vaxxers like what about the sage policy on guidelines is that helpful in determining the safety and efficacy of vaccines well i I certainly think that they're helpful right and i think where you know where we sit right now is kind of this weird crossroads right so we know we know, obviously, there's been um, you know, quite a bit of question about uh, you know safety and efficacy of vaccines. Uh, you know, ever since the, the Andrew Wakefield uh, stuff came out, you know, over a decade ago now, um, and, and, and I think rightfully so that that people want to ensure that they are getting safe products. Uh, and of course, you know, we're we're half in that court and then also half in the other court of we have this brand new virus. It's you know wreaking havoc across the globe. People are dying. People are getting sick. And we need to get something out because we don't have a vaccine uh, for this particular bug. So what what do we do? And I think where we sit right now is really um, taking a look back at, at, at what's been kind of gained and, and learned over the you know the, definitely the last decade as far as safety and efficacy for vaccines. And we're now applying that in real time. So the, the safety standards that are that are being uh, adhered to right now. For, uh, for the current vaccines that, that are being tested. Uh, I think in particular those uh, that are part of the, the COVAX agreement, so the, the different nations across the globe that are agreeing to, to share vaccines and vaccine knowledge, um, are, are, I think, unequaled and, and unparalleled in history. And I think we saw that with the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine where they had you know one case where it looked like uh-huh. there could have potentially been an adverse event. That trial was stopped across the globe. And not until they felt that there was actually comfortability did they move ahead. Right. Now, I will say up front, the one thing I don't like right now is that a lot of the data that's being released is being released primarily through media releases as compared to uh, uh, statements of, uh, you know, data statements or through preprint uh, articles through through journals. And so I think that you know, brings some question with it because you don't get to see the full data sets in real time. But I, I'm quite comfortable with the fact that when you look at the tens of thousands of people that are being uh, examined right now and monitored in in top of uh, you know the fact that we're looking to you know have a vaccine that can get administered and, and get delivered as quickly as possible i I have complete faith that that we will see you know probably some of the safest vaccines in history yeah and and we're looking at um well it looks it appears as though it's it is a news release um, but Canada is protecting the health and safety of all Canadians. Um, they are securing up to 72 million doses of COVID-19 adjuvanted recombinant protein-based vaccines from GlaxoSmithKline and Sanofi. You mentioned a few of them earlier. Um, who would these vaccines likely be? Uh, who, who's number one in line? Who do we want to vaccinate? 
Well, that's, that's a great question, right? And when we look at, at SARS coronavirus 2, the, the virus that causes COVID-19, we know that it disproportionately affects um, the, the most vulnerable in our populations. And those are, are people that are in underserved communities, those that are elderly, those that are living uh, in close proximity to one another, so uh, multifamily dwellings, um, and, and lower income regions, uh, as we've seen, certainly, and, and minorities, as we've seen through the U.S. So I think what you're going to see is that the vaccines will get distributed to those areas where we're seeing ongoing transmission and which meet the criteria where if the virus starts to surge, that the likelihood is we would see greater transmission in those regions. So I, I think undoubtedly, as long as, as we can get the, the vaccines to show safety and efficacy in uh, elderly people, we are likely going to see those um, that population targeted first, and then probably moving into those that are, you know, obviously healthcare workers, frontline healthcare workers, mm-hmm. and people that uh, that that live uh, in, in areas where you can't necessarily guarantee uh, physical or social distancing, and then onwards, uh, you know, out from that. Right, and, we, and we've seen so many frontline workers who have um, come down with COVID nineteen. So many people living in long term care facilities. Dr. Kinderchuk, thank you so much for joining me again. I've really appreciated all of the information that you've shared and um, and the up to date information on what Canada has done for uh, to procure uh, vaccines in this country for Canadians. Absolutely, a pleasure. I have a report in front of me from the Coroner Service of British Columbia of the illicit drug toxicity deaths in British Columbia from January 1st, 2010 to August 31st, 2020. And it is sobering. The report summarizes all unintentional illicit drug toxicity deaths in British Columbia, which includes accidental and undetermined, that that occurred between January 1st, 2010 and August 31st, 2020, inclusive. And it includes confirmed and suspected illicit toxicity deaths. In August 2020, there were 147 suspected illicit drug toxicity deaths. This represents a 71% increase over the number of deaths seen in August 2019, which was at 86, and a 16% decrease over the number of deaths seen in July 2020, which was at 176. In 2020, 69% of those dying were aged 30 to 59 Males accounted for 81% of deaths in 2020 to date. Joining me on the line to talk about this and how we are going to get on the front lines of this war is the president of the BC Nurses Union, Christine Sorensen. Good evening, Christine. Good evening, Maureen. Thank you for joining me. Happy to be here. Thank you. Um, so these are pretty upsetting statistics. Uh, we've heard a little bit about this in the news. And, um, uh, you know, many, many people know somebody who has uh, died in this way. Um, and not only, you know, is it the family, it's family and friends and colleagues and cousins and aunts and grandmothers and who suffer almost needlessly. Um, because of the deaths from uh, overdoses. So recently, the provincial health officer has made an order so that nurses, registered nurses and registered psychiatric nurses can now help. So tell me a little bit about that, how nurses can help and uh, what that's going to look like. Well, this was a really welcome announcement. Uh, So September 16th, uh, the provincial health officer put out an order 
uh, that indicated that registered nurses and registered psychiatric nurses uh, would be added to the group of health professionals that could prescribe pharmaceutical alternatives to street drugs. What this means is that nurses who are working with uh, uh, individuals who are using street drugs, opiates, uh, and perhaps interacting with nurses in a variety of settings could reach out to a registered nurse, registered psychiatric nurse, and and perhaps uh, engage in a conversation with them uh, about an alternative to using street drugs uh, in order to to get the help that they need to eventually release themselves from that addiction to those drugs. So basically registered nurses uh, will be able to, who work with uh, people with addiction issues, will be able to write prescriptions for opiate addiction opioid agonist therapy, which is an effective treatment for addiction to opioid drugs like heroin or oxycodone, Dilaudid, fentanyl, and Percocet, some of the ones, some of the more well-known ones. Is that correct? Yes, it includes both registered nurses and registered psychiatric nurses in this province. Uh, And those are added to physicians and nurse practitioners who are already obviously prescribing those. Uh, And this is because that, you know, a lot of people don't often have access to a physician or a nurse practitioner, depending on where they live or the state of their access to health care. But they may have access to a nurse, uh, whether that's a nurse working in a supervised injection facility, a nurse working on the street, a home care nurse who's interacting with them in their home or in their community. Uh, So it is an opportunity for more health care practitioners to be able to intervene in these individuals' lives. And it's not just people on the street who are addicted to these drugs. There are many people in the tall towers or, you know, now working from home uh, virtually who are addicted to things like heroin, oxycodone, uh, hydromorphone or Dilaudid, um, and fentanyl. And, um, but it, it's a big secret. It's a big shame. Um, the other thing is that nurses prescribing is a huge change in scope of practice. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a great first step. This is something that we have been asking the provincial government to look at uh, for quite a long time, which is allowing nurses uh, to prescribe, registered nurses, psychiatric nurses, uh, to prescribe medications in this province, uh, routine prescriptions, perhaps the um, those that are uh, replacement of annual prescriptions that people have been taking for years and years. Uh, ways to help us alleviate the healthcare system, uh, standard medications. So this is an interesting first step. It's a step towards what we'd eventually like to see, which is expanding nurses' scope of practice about writing prescriptions. Uh, and I believe this is a good first step to, to look at it, supporting those with mental health and addictions uh, in this province. Now, will nurses be able to prescribe methadose or Suboxone or Cadian, the medications that work to prevent withdrawal and reduce cravings for opioid drugs? Well, what's going to happen next is that the College for Nursing, so the BC Nurses uh, College for for Nurses and Midwives, uh, will review this. They'll, They'll set the standards, limits, and conditions for what nurses can do in this province. Um, Once that's passed, uh, a short period of time following that, about 30 days following that, it will become effective. Uh, There is training that will have to take place. A nurse just won't be able to prescribe the next day. Uh, I believe that program is being run from the BC Centre of Substance Use. uh, So there will be training, specialized training for nurses uh, who wish to prescribe 
so it won't be every nurse in the province that will be able to do this on day one. Um, but we will start uh, with nurses in this program, complete the training education, who will then be able to do a complete assessment of a patient, um, be admitted to PharmaNet, or have access to prescribing through PharmaNet uh, for the safety of the patient. Um, and, uh, and we'll see how it goes. Uh, my understanding is Suboxone is on the list. Okay. Uh, is, are the others as well? Or, or method, is Methadose on the list? Do you know? or No, Canadian? at this point I'm not... Just- I'm not aware. Um, and again, these are things that are being worked through through the college, the BC Centre Substance Use, in regards to what exactly this will cover. And the aim of this program is to help uh, people stabilize their lives and reduce the harms in their lives that are related to drug use. Um, is that a fair statement? Yes, I think it's a fair statement. I think we have to remember, though, expanding nurses' scope in this way to allow them to prescribe is just one part of the solution. You know, we really do need to look at long-term investments uh, to build comprehensive uh, system that addresses mental health and addictions care in this province. Um, And as you said, this is not just for people who are uh, living, working uh, on the street. Uh, This is something that is in people's homes in small rural and remote communities and urban centers uh, across those province. Uh, and many families have been touched by families who um, have lost a loved one uh, due to addiction. Uh, and so, you know, this is one part of the solution, but there are many other things that need to be considered. And, and Absolutely. And in fact, in 2020, 84%, according to this illicit drug toxicity deaths in British Columbia uh, from the BC Coroner Service report, 84% of illicit drug toxicity deaths occurred inside. So 56% in private residences and 28% in other residences, including social and supportive housing, SROs, shelters and hotels and other indoor locations. And 15% occurred outside in on sidewalks and vehicles, streets, parks, etc. cetera. Um, and in, Van- in the Vancouver Coastal Health Region, other residences, 48%, were the most common place of illicit toxicity deaths, followed by private residents, 36%. Um, it was, it's notable that no deaths have been reported at supervised consumption or drug overdose prevention sites. And that's what I, I gather you're referring to when you say other strategies need to be implemented in addition to uh, prescription writing. Absolutely. You know, and RNs and RPNs are trained experts, and they're vitally important to the healthcare teams uh, that are working through this crisis, the opiate crisis. But we have to remember we're also working through another crisis, which is the, uh, which is COVID. And you reference so many people that are, um, this is affecting home. Uh, and this is the concern of nurses who are working in those supervised injection uh, sites or who work with people regularly with addictions issues, um, that while we're staying home and we're isolating, um, people are becoming a a little bit more lonely and anxiety is increasing and they're using other coping mechanisms. And we're seeing people using at home. And so this is a concern that we have as nurses. We want people to go and work or go and, and use in a supervised injection facility where it's safer because no, there have been no deaths there. But because of COVID, so many people now are at home and they're isolating at home and using this as a coping mechanism. Uh, And unfortunately, we're seeing the effect of these deaths, as you said, so many now occurring in people's homes. 
Absolutely. And, you know, often I say that uh, women's sexual health or intimate health issues like vaginal health, sexual health, um, bladder health go uh, underserved. They're underserved or women are often dismissed. Um, By the same token, I think that men's mental health issues can be dismissed as well. And some of the observations of the past few months in British Columbia have been that male illicit drug toxicity death rates have increased in recent months and have remained high, where female rates have declined um, in in August of 2020 to average levels. Uh, that, That says something about um, men reaching out to get the help that they need and that there's still a stigma associated with male mental health and, and weakness and masculinity and, and you know, never dare say you're depressed because somebody might think that you're weak when, it, when it's actually a medical condition. Absolutely. And this is something that, you know, nurses are seeing, uh, whether I have colleagues who are working in community mental health or whether they're working in acute psychiatry or emergency rooms, uh, they are very concerned about the state of people's mental health uh, and the use of uh, whether they're um, other substances, whether that be alcohol or street drugs, illicit drugs, uh, as a a mechanism of coping. Uh, Perhaps women, children are at home, maybe they're focused on other things, trying to keep their families together. Um, maybe they just feel that they, they, they have to keep going. Men, for some reason, you know, as you say, internalize and perhaps don't feel as comfortable coming out and speaking. Um, this is one of the things that I'm pleased about. This gives people more opportunities to speak with not just doctors and, and uh, nurse practitioners, but also registered nurses, registered psychiatric nurses, people they may interact with for other reasons of their health care. Absolutely. Uh, at a diabetes clinic, at a cardiac clinic. And they can maybe open the door to that conversation and say, you know, I'm really struggling right now and I've been using opiates. Um, I've been using street drugs to cope um, and I really, I really want to get off this or I really, I really need some help right now. Uh, and this will open that door to that conversation and, and hopefully, you know, provide the care that people need. It's it's true. And many times people are much more comfortable speaking to a nurse. I certainly hear that from my patients. Um, and, and of course, it's we're bound by uh, privacy regulations by the College of British Columbia and other colleges of nursing. Um, and But it is, it's difficult for some people to speak to their doctor. They may play golf with their doctor or, or whatever reason. Um, so yeah, m- many, many different things. Um, but I think this is a welcome change. It will take some time, but at least people will know uh, there's another resource for them to help them with, you know, drug addiction and potentially mental health issues as well. Absolutely. It's, you know, this is a step in the right direction to urgently address the devastating overdose crisis in BC that has affected so many families. And any way we can expand access to alternates uh, to these toxic and poison drug supply is a really good thing. Absolutely. Christine, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you, Maureen. Have a good evening. Thank you. Same to you. Joining me on the line is my favorite sex nurse, Eric. And we're going to be talking about um, syphilis on the rise on a Sunday. Good evening, Eric. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? 
pretty good. Good, good. So um, you alerted me to this, or I think I maybe heard it on the news as well. Anyhow, um, syphilis is on the rise. We don't think of syphilis as something that we can contract uh, when we are in the sack with, uh, with somebody, especially during a pandemic. Why are we seeing these rates of syphilis rise? Yeah, so there's a few reasons. One, a lot of testing centers are now closed or only seeing people who are symptomatic. It's much more difficult to get tested on a regular basis. And two, because syphilis doesn't often have symptoms or as it used to be called the great pretender or the great imitator, it imitates other symptoms that people may pass off as something completely non-sexually health related. Very interesting. And so this goes back to sex education once again, would you say, Eric? Absolutely, it does. And so what would be the most uh, salient points that you would like to get across to people living in this pandemic who are you know, wanting to hook up with somebody uh, and, you know, might be a little bit impulsive, might not make all of the, uh, you know, ask all the questions, uh, check if the person's been outside of the country in the last 14 days. Um, you know, what, what would be uh, some of the most important things that you'd like to get across? Absolutely. I would say if you have uh, friends with benefits or someone that you, a, a sexual partner that you're having sex with uh, frequently, and it's just a one-on-one thing, uh, it's not a concern of getting tested uh, frequently. It's more so if you have uh, a whole bunch of different partners or if you're having frequently new partners that you're introducing the risk of getting sexually transmitted infections such as syphilis. So what I would say is that people who are sexually active and having more than three partners in a month, I would say get tested at least every three months. And there's a magic number behind that three. And that's because it's a 90-day window period for syphilis. And what that means is that let's say you, you engage in sexual activities with someone and you contract syphilis. You may not know that you have syphilis and it may not show up in a blood test for up to 90 days, which is scary for some. It certainly is because you can have hookups with a few more people in that 90-day period, right? Absolutely. I remember one case in a clinic that I worked at, uh, there was a fellow and he had one of the symptoms of syphilis is you can have a painless lesion, so like a painless sore. Yeah. And this one was, was quite small and he just thought maybe he nicked himself while he was shaving. I was like, well, you know, it looks kind of abnormal to me. So I swabbed it with a special swab for syphilis, and I drew his blood work for syphilis. The blood work came back negative, but the swab came back positive. So that was just like a really good reinforcer for me to be like, in terms of education, is that you think you're safe, but you're not. Right. Having said that, I don't want to scare people into not having sex either. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, wow, that's, that's a very um, frightening story. But anyway, what's your number one tip for people to prevent sexually transmitted infections? Ask the questions, have a conversation, and feel free to ask or even start the conversation with, hey, you know what? I was tested a month ago. When were you last tested? And just just start there. Exactly. In the whole COVID testing obsession with which we're living, do not forget the STI testing. Eric, thank you so much. My pleasure.
Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.